Last week in part one, we ended off with the information that Jessica was still alive after a alleged attempted suicide by a self-inflicted gunshot. When Jessica was rushed to hospital, doctors could not find a bullet wound. Instead, they found a wound that was more along the lines of blunt force trauma. Jessica couldn't tell anyone what had happened to her inside that locked closet because she was in a coma for three weeks. But then she wakes up. If you haven't listened to part one, I would encourage you to go back and do that to get the full backstory. What really happened to Jessica that night? Well, come hang out with me while I talk true crime. Hello and welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. Before we get into this week's episode, I just wanted to let everybody know about a podcast I have recently discovered. It's called Cola City Crime. Let's hear from them. Welcome to the Carolinas, where serial killers, abductions, and mysterious circumstances are abundant. Join me, Tiffany, and my co-host, Sam, two moms, as we cover local true crime cases that will leave you wanting more. Tune in every weekend for our new episodes where we rotate between North Carolina and South Carolina true crime cases. Find us on all major podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio, and follow us on our social media. We're on Instagram at Cola City Crime, and you can find our Facebook page by searching our name, Cola City Crime. Thank you, Cola City Crime. Let's get into this week's episode. I have a feeling it's going to be extra long, so buckle up. In part one, we ended off with Jessica waking up from her coma after three weeks in hospital. She had been found in a locked closet in her home with what was believed to be a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the top of her head. When she arrived in hospital, her head was shaved and it looked more like blunt force trauma and not a gunshot wound. Jessica had plans to divorce Matthew, her husband, as he was having an affair. Jessica was moving out with the children that day, but ends up being airlifted to hospital. Sheriff Beam, who is Matthew's grandfather, informed her family she was dead when she was in fact not dead. This sheriff shouldn't even have been at the scene of the incident, let alone having Jessica's family informed she's dead by police officers. There are so many unbelievable things happening at once. I just want to jump back a bit to the night of the incident and talk a little more about how Matthew was reacting when the EMS and police were on the scene. I said this in part one several times, and I will say it again. Matthew Boynton has never been convicted or found guilty of any crimes relating to this case. He is completely innocent in the eyes of the law. On the police body cam from the night of the incident, Matthew is seen standing outside the apartment wearing a red sweater. A few hours earlier, he was wearing a gray sweater, which was captured on Walmart security footage. That gray sweater, as far as I know, was never located and never forensically examined. When police arrive on the scene, the first thing I heard him say on the body cam was, I hope she didn't shoot my kids. 
This seemed odd to me. I don't know exactly why. It was just a gut feeling I had. I've covered a case where a woman ran into a burning building and suffered severe burns trying to save her child. So I guess my thinking is that a parent would do anything to try to protect their children, not just stand outside and hope. I think that's where my gut feeling was coming from. I'm going to play the body cam footage I found online. Here is the footage I found online. I could have just fucking jumped. I mean, if, if I could have been here two minutes earlier, man, I could have jumped in front of the gun and tried to get it from her, man. Look, man, look. She's still breathing. She's got good pulse, blood pressure. Uh, man. She's even fighting with EMS, dude. Where did she shoot herself at? I couldn't tell. Oh, uh, man. She would have never done this. I don't, I don't know why. I mean, I, I was telling Guthrie, man, I was supposed to go eat with Guthrie. I got ready to leave, and I, I got ready to walk out the door and started walking down the steps. I didn't even get halfway. She asked me to come back, and she was crying. And she asked me, she said, well, can you, can you call EMS? I said, okay, well, you know, what, what's wrong? And I asked her two or three times, and she just looked at me and just kept crying. I said, can you please tell me what's wrong? And, you know, I, I mean, are you having trouble breathing, or, you know, wh what is it? She said, never mind, don't worry about it. So, I mean, I, I left. I mean, this is, ask Guthrie, man. This is a common thing here lately. I mean, I got in the Waffle House when I got the text. I circled back around, come back down uh, Highway 16 West, headed westbound, come back down through Carver. I was I was on the phone with uh, dispatcher Angie, man, to call EMS. Hmm. I hit, Negative. I hit, I was hitting 90 coming down Carver trying to get in here, man. If I could, damn it, man. If I could have been here sooner, she... Maybe I could have stopped her. I would have just left my fucking duty belt in the car. I just... Fuck, man. I mean, I... Was the front door already open, or did you open it? The, the front door was, uh... Fuck, man. No, the door's locked. I had to put my key in it. But when I come, in, when I come up the stairs, I, I don't even know where my fucking keys are. I don't know where my phone is. I have my keys and my phone in my hand. I didn't have a I didn't have an off-duty weapon, nothing. I only got that one gun. My shotgun's in the car, don't even have any bullets in it. I come up I come upstairs. Um fuck man. Okay. Fuck. I'll be right back. Are you gonna stay here? Oh Curtis was asking. Yeah. Chardonnay's gonna be the report. I did find the full body cam footage thanks to 11alive who uploaded it online. I have linked it in my show notes if you would like to watch the entire body cam footage, but I would definitely say that there is a content warning on that because nothing is blurred out. So you do see uh, first responders, you see Jessica, it is quite graphic, um, but I just wanted to talk about that audio clip because at the beginning of it, Matthew is clearly very, very distraught. And then his distraught, crying, uncontrollable emotion, it kind of 
snaps right out of him. He kind of snaps right out of that and he starts talking to the police officer in a very matter of fact, calm manner. And I just found that to be, I mean, everybody deals with these situations differently, but I just found that to be quite odd. On that body cam audio we just heard, Matthew is heard on body cam saying, she loved me. She told me she loved me before she did it. What are my kids going to do? I could have jumped if I could have been here 10 minutes earlier. Hey man, I could have jumped in front of the gun and tried to get it from her man. That's what he's heard saying there. To this, the police officer, he's trying to reassure him that Jessica is still alive and breathing. He tells Matthew that her pulse is strong and her blood pressure is good. So then why was her family told she was dead? She was very much alive when they took her out of that closet. We just heard that. Next, I want to talk about Matthew's cell phone. This is where things get messy. His phone had been a topic of interest for an independent journalist named Sheila Matthews. Sheila Matthews just is this amazing woman who is just seeking for answers. And she lives in the town of Griffin, Georgia, which is in Spalding County where all this is happening. And Sheila, she publishes and writes for a paper called The Grip. And she wants to get to the bottom of what's happening in this case. Matthew's phone was seen on the police body cam footage and in crime scene photos inside the apartment by the microwave when police entered the home. This is where it's believed Matthew had left it when he grabbed his police radio, which he said was charging on the kitchen counter. This makes sense. He puts down his phone, grabs the radio, and flees the apartment to avoid any possible gunshots. On that body cam footage I just played, you could even hear Matthew tell the officer that he had no idea where his phone was. I think he said, I don't even know where my phone and keys are. He said something to that effect. When this detail is looked into, just a little bit more questions start to surface. For one, Corporal Robert Jones, who was an officer on site that evening, tells the GBI three times in an interview that Matthew's phone was by the microwave when they entered the home and it remained there. Thanks to a series called The Officer's Wife, I was able to hear Corporal Jones tell this to the GBI. I will now summarize what I heard in that interview between Corporal Jones and the GBI agent. Corporal Jones. He did say that he did go in because we found his keys and his cell phone inside. GBI agent. Okay, but he went in. So he didn't go in when you guys were there. Corporal Jones. Mm-mm. No, the apartment door was open. I had asked him, did you go inside? And he said his babies were crying, so he went inside. And um, he laid his keys on the counter. He couldn't remember where he put his phone at, but his phone, I believe, was next to the microwave in the kitchen. Corporal Jones also states, quote, he kept asking for his phone. And um, I said, where is it at? And he said, it's somewhere up there. He said, my keys and my phone are up there. So I looked, I was thinking it was outside, but that's when I noticed his keys were on the counter and his phone was near the microwave, unquote. And then later in that interview, Corporal Jones says again, quote, he said my keys and my phone are up there somewhere. So I said, I'll go up there and check. And that's when I seen his keys on the counter and his phone by the microwave. And I just left it there, told nobody not to mess with it, unquote. Okay, then we have 
Agent DeMarco from GBI, who was also there that night, tells Sheila Matthews they took that phone from Matthew and placed it on the counter to take pictures of it because Matthew had it. So let's just hear a bit of this conversation. This recording I also heard on episode 5 of The Officer's Wife, which is a series about this case. What I heard was an audio recording of Sheila Matthews questioning GBI agent DeMarco about the phone, and he says something different from what Corporal Jones said. Sheila Matthews says, If you go to the photograph that are part of your investigation case file, there's a photograph and also the evidence report for his cell phone. It was retrieved from the kitchen counter in front of the microwave oven. To this, Agent DeMarco says, no, it wasn't. It was actually from him. We put it on the counter to take a picture of it. DeMarco also states, quote, I think he had his phone with him. The picture, the phone, I don't know. I'd have to look at the stuff, but I'd have to look back at the case file. And then Sheila says, if you need to do that, I think that this is actually an extremely important question because if he was that upset and that terrified, why would he be standing in the kitchen to text his girlfriend and waiting for her to reply? Hmm, I agree, Sheila. Something is not adding up. The thing is, though, is that when you see the police body cam footage, you can clearly see the phone is on the counter by the microwave. And this is the same for the crime scene photos. The body cam footage matches up what the corporal is telling the GBI, but it's not matching up to what Agent DeMarco from the GBI is telling Sheila Matthews. There's something happening here. And you might also be wondering what Sheila is talking about when she mentions Matthew standing in the kitchen texting his girlfriend. The police were the first on the scene, then the GBI arrived. So there is a bit of time in between when the police arrived, saw that phone on the counter, and then from when GBI showed up and took the phone from Matthew according to DeMarco. So did Matthew grab his phone then? Because I didn't think he re-entered the house after the radio call though. Okay. I mean, this could be a mistake in the report due to confusion, or maybe Matthew went inside again once police were there and grabbed his phone. I mean, there are a lot of different ways this detail could have gotten twisted up. But why even is this detail so important? Why is Sheila hounding people about this? And there is an answer. So listen to the correlation between the time Matthew radios in the gunshots and text messages between him and his girlfriend. You could hear Sheila mention this at the end of that audio clip. And this is where things get undeniably fishy. This is where Sheila's heading with this. Approximately 1 a.m., Matthew sends a text message to his girlfriend that reads something like, give me a few to text back. Long story, tell you later. At 1 a.m. and 7 seconds... Matthew has radioed in the gunshots, which means he has his radio, which means he has arrived to the apartment, heard the baby crying, heard the gunshots, ran inside, discovered the locked closet, smelled the gun smoke, ran into the kitchen, put his phone on the counter, grabbed his radio off its charger, and then fled the apartment with his radio Two, radio in, shots fired when he was outside of the apartment. So I will actually play you the radio call now. 
I believe I just heard a shot fired coming into my residence. I just came up the stairs two rounds, be it positive, a smoke gun smoke, and I can't get an answer to the door. Stay outside. 10-4. I got that clip from a YouTube episode on this called Stay Awake, and it's titled Matthew is Not a Good Cop, and you can find that on YouTube. I have linked that in my show notes. In that police radio call, clearly Matthew sounds upset. He sounds very upset in that radio call. This would mean he sent his girlfriend that text message, then radioed in the shots fired seven seconds later, because that's when it went into dispatch into their computer. Matthew said he radioed in the shots fired while he was outside the apartment and never went back in. Yet his phone was found inside the apartment. And at 1 a.m. and 30 seconds past, his girlfriend sent him a text and that text was marked as read. It was her saying, okay, good night. And that was read. That's after the radio call, which means according to Matthew's story, he was outside and his phone was inside. How can this be? How can Matthew be running up the stairs, hearing the baby crying, hearing the gunshots, entering the home, fearing for his life, being so scared he can't stay in the home, being so scared he can't look for his children, but apparently be in two different places at once, texting his girlfriend from the phone in the kitchen and being outside uh, radioing police. He is on his radio to police outside the apartment when his phone is inside the apartment, yet seven seconds earlier. Before that radio call, he sent his girlfriend a text message when he was supposedly fearing for his life and his children's life and is really distraught. That text message that said, long story, can't tell you now, text you later or whatever. Then 30 seconds later, a text from his girlfriend to him comes through after he radios in the call, which would mean the phone is inside and somehow that message is marked as read when he is outside. So who read that message then? I guess there could be an argument that maybe his screen was still on and it was just marked red, but nobody saw it. You know, maybe there's an argument there. But even still, something isn't adding up with when he sent that text message to his girlfriend and the time he radioed police and him being inside and outside of the apartment. Something's not adding up. Matthew said he did look for the children in the master bedroom when he first entered that apartment after hearing gunshots and the child crying. He did not look in their bedrooms, though, because he didn't have time. He, he was fearing for his life, so he rushed out of the apartment. There was an argument of if Matthew was so scared to the point he fled the apartment without looking for his children in their own beds and who he believed to be in danger, then the fact he's texting his girlfriend shows a total opposite mindset of what he's putting out there. He doesn't have time to look for his children in this dangerous situation, yet he has time to stand in his kitchen and text? Is that what's happening here or did he re-enter the home or what's going on? Also, when Matthew radioed into police that he heard shots fired, he also said that he had heard his baby crying before he entered the home. And then in the police body cam footage, we can also hear a baby crying. So if Matthew was actually looking for his children and didn't know where they were, why couldn't he just follow the sounds of the baby crying? to find where the baby was. That's another question I had. This never gets straightened out and it drives me absolutely crazy. There is no direct timeline of what happened. How can Matthew be outside of the apartment, radioing in, shots fired, fearing 
for his life so much, he can't bring himself to go inside to find his children. And he's also texting and receiving texts from his cell phone to his girlfriend that is inside the home. I don't know what's going on here because this just, it's just getting more and more twisted. Well, independent journalist Sheila Matthew, she wants to straighten out all the details and she calls Agent DeMarco to ask him about it. They have a chat about Matthew's cell phone. He says they took the phone from Matthew and placed it by the microwave in order to get the crime scene photos. That's the clip that we just heard earlier. Sheila talks about how the phone was seen on police body cam already by the microwave when police entered. Sheila also questions him about the outgoing and incoming text messages between between Matthew and his girlfriend, and the correlation with the radio to dispatch timeline Matthew made about shots fired. Agent DeMarco, he wants to review what information she is looking at and to get back to her about the specifics. Later, DeMarco does email Sheila, but this only adds to the confusion. He informs Sheila that Matthew was en route to his home when he sent that 1 a.m. text message to his girlfriend saying, long story, tell you later. But that can't be true because seven seconds later, dispatch logs the radio information about shots fired that Matthew radioed in. That means not only was he not en route, he was there and he had already heard the gunshots. He had already entered the property, ran inside, looked in the master bedroom, checked the closet. The closet was locked, smelled the gun smoke, grabbed his radio, then texted his girlfriend, then ran outside and radioed in the gunshots. The timeline is so messy. It's just, it's not adding up to me. Was Matthew in his kitchen texting his girlfriend when he claims he was outside and too scared to be looking for his children in a possible active shooter situation? Wasn't he so distraught that texting would be the last thing on his mind? Did he radio the police from inside the apartment and not outside like he claims? If that's the case, if he was standing in his apartment texting, I thought that he was scared that his wife was going to shoot him. He said he was scared of that and that's why he fled without looking for the children in their beds. He said he was scared his wife was going to shoot him, shoot the kids, and then shoot herself. As Sheila Matthew said in an interview on the officer's wife, quote, my understanding in the laws of physics is that one person can't be in two places at the same time, unquote. Hmm, okay. Let's just put a pin in the cell phone business and let's talk about what happens when Jessica's in hospital, alive, but in a coma. Matthew does visit her once in those three weeks and he makes sure to take his sheriff grandfather with him while he's on duty. Matthew wanted to make sure there would be no room for allegations. And I was like, hold on, what? I found that odd because at this point he hadn't, I, do, I feel like he hadn't been put under a lot of legal scrutiny for the situation. His interview with agents didn't seem to be anything. His hands weren't even swabbed for gunshot residue, which if they suspected he did this, you think they would do that immediately. Or if he had something to do with this, you think they would test his hands, but they didn't test his hands. It seemed like he was cleared very fast. So why is he bringing somebody along to the hospital to avoid allegations. Again, this seems like a strange detail. 
He had been put on administrative leave, but he was quickly back at work in uniform, gun and all, patrolling the streets. The more I read about his grandfather, Sheriff Beam, the more I did not trust him. But I will go more into depth with that later. While Jessica was in a coma, Matthew moved him and their two children in with his girlfriend. That's right, the woman he was having an affair with. Jessica's laying in hospital with what the doctor said looked like blunt force trauma to her head. Matthew has taken the children and moved in with his mistress. And Agent DeMarco is telling Matthew they will get him back on the job quickly, get his gun back to him, and get his phone back to him. And they do. GBI had interviewed the neurosurgeon who handled Jessica's head wound, and even he said the injury looks suspicious. Jessica was brought into hospital with this supposed self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head, but the injury was actually a skull fracture, and there was no bullet entry point found, meaning no bullet went into or out of her head, yet she has a skull fracture and trauma to her brain. The agent who the neurosurgeon told about his suspicions did not record the conversation as his recording device was dead. Hmm. According to the New Yorker, the neurosurgeon thought the entire situation was suspicious from Jessica's injury to the way it was handled. He was quoted saying this to the New Yorker. Quote, you'd think it would have been simple enough to put bags on her hands and test them for gunshot residue. I was wondering why, but then it came to pass that her husband was a police officer and his granddaddy was the sheriff, so I understood. Unquote. After the three weeks, Jessica comes out of her medically induced coma. When they asked Jessica about what happened, she can't remember. She has suffered significant head trauma and can't recall what exactly had happened to her. At first, she thinks she's been in a car accident. Once awake, Jessica is interviewed by two GBI agents, DeMarco and Agent Coleman. Jessica tells them that she remembers going to Walmart and that's the last thing. They ask her a series of questions. Within this series is a question about Matthew's gun. Jessica tells them she can't even get the lock off of it, even if she wanted to. According to Jessica, she lacked the knowledge to even get the gun out of the case, let alone shoot it. They asked her about ever wanting to harm herself before, and she said no. She talked about how she would never do that and doesn't think about it because of her children, which is exactly what her sister said the night of the incident. They asked her if she thinks Matthew is incapable of doing this to her, which I found odd because usually people say capable. Wouldn't it make more sense to say, do you think Matthew is capable of doing this to you? But they don't. They ask her if she thinks he is incapable of doing this to her. And remember, they are talking to someone with a head wound. So it makes me wonder if they were trying to trip her up. If they were, it didn't work because she told them that's for them to find out, which I was like, damn, Jessica, good answer. Hospital staff, including two psychiatrists who assessed her, said she was not depressed and didn't need treatment for depression. This next part, oh man, this next part. 
Jessica is released into her grandparents' care, and little did she know, Matthew had been busy at the old courthouse. Jessica was not allowed to come within 300 yards of her own children and Matthew. Do you want to know the reason why? Matthew had gotten a family violence protection order against Jessica, stating, and I quote, Probable cause exists that family violence had occurred in the past and may occur in the future, unquote. Yeah, well, that's kind of rich, isn't it? I'm not even going to touch that one. Matthew is saying that Jessica is the source of family violence in the home, and I could not even. When I read that, I just, I, I just can't even go there. Matthew, he then tries to get this extended for a year, and guess who he brings to the courthouse with him? That's right, his dear old grandfather, Sheriff Beam. He can't seem to live without him. When the conversation arose in court about Jessica's grandparents being able to be with the children, Matthew argued they weren't blood relatives and shouldn't be trusted. Um, excuse you, but isn't the youngest of those boys not blood related to Matthew? And yet he's seemingly having full custody. It was brought up that Matthew was the one who caused family violence in the relationship, but the person who was going to testify about it was so scared to do so, it never happened. It seemed like people were too scared to come forward to testify about what they had seen in Jessica and Matthew's relationship. Things landed with Matthew having full custody of the children, but the protection order was not extended and Jessica was only allowed to see her children once a week for a few hours. There was rules put in place that it had to be supervised by Sheriff Beam. Jessica's family was like, no fucking way. That sheriff is supervising shit for us. Those are not their exact words, I just put it into my own words. But they did end up paying a $100 fee every week for a different officer to supervise. When Jessica underwent her court-ordered psychological evaluation, it was reported she was in no way depressed. She was diagnosed with acute stress disorder, which was expected given her current situation. Apparently, acute stress disorder comes about when a person has experienced the threat of death, which Jessica for sure has. The investigation, I'm doing air quotes around investigation, you can't see me, but the investigation, and I use that word loosely, was closed on Jessica's case in September of the same year, which was about five months after the incident. Matthew was totally cleared of even being in the apartment in the moments Jessica's injury occurred. This case was closed and her injuries were labeled as self-inflicted gunshot. Wait a minute. Didn't the healthcare professionals say there was no bullet hole, no bullet, and it looked like blunt force trauma? Well, the chief medical examiner declared it a gunshot even though he never even saw a picture of the wound before surgery and he never examined the wound. And there was no proof of gunshot residue on Jessica's hands because her hands were never tested. How exactly did the chief medical examiner come up with that conclusion then? Let's just talk about Sheriff Beam for a moment because what I read was shocking. Wendell Beam worked in the sheriff's office for what seemed like to be his entire life, almost 40 years. And in 2011, he moved up the ranks and became sheriff. Now, it was said that he was kind, but also resistant to change. 
I mean, that doesn't sound like a deal breaker for a sheriff. But then I read about this other guy who worked for Beam named David Gibson. David Gibson worked with Sheriff Beam, and it was Sheriff Beam who promoted this guy to patrol division captain. The thing I found unsettling about this situation was the complaints female officers told Sheriff Beam about Gibson and how he handled them. These accusations and complaints were extremely alarming and showed a side of Gibson that had no respect for women and to be quite frank, very predatorial. It was said that female co-workers were afraid of Gibson and he would say things to them such as, quote, shut your cock garage, unquote. This was apparently very common for him to say to women. Shut your cock garage. That's what he would say to female co-workers. How the hell is... I just, okay. Then there was an accusation against Gibson that he put pressure on a female deputy to have sexual relations with him. And this deputy was scared and reluctantly did so. Not because she wanted to, but because she was so scared of him and what he was potentially capable of. This same deputy testified that Gibson had choked her twice. This deputy took her concerns to Sheriff Beam, and he said he would only look into the complaint if she put it in writing, which she did not do for whatever reason. Most likely she was scared, and then she resigned because she felt so powerless. So Sheriff Beam knew about this, and that complaint went nowhere. It doesn't end there, though. One day, a sergeant saw Gibson hold a taser gun up to the head of a female officer while he put her in a headlock. So he's holding her in a headlock. He puts a taser gun up to her head. The officer screamed for him to get off of her. Clearly, this wasn't funny to her. If he was doing this as a joke, nobody was laughing but him. This sergeant who saw this interaction complained to Sheriff Beam, and still, there were no repercussions for Gibson. There was something called undocumented counseling, but who knows what that means. Following this incident, a female secretary complained to Sheriff Beam that Gibson had slapped her on the back of her head and stated to a fellow officer, quote, I'm going to show you how we take care of these secretaries, unquote. Nothing happened to him over this. Then in 2014, another female deputy arranged a meeting to talk to Sheriff Beam about Gibson. This female deputy wanted to talk about how Gibson treated female employees as it was demeaning. Sheriff Beam allowed this meeting, but it wasn't in his office. The meeting took place in a remote location outside of the town in a park. This female deputy made sure to record the meeting because she was worried she could possibly disappear. It was said that Sheriff Beam was concerned about the matter and tried to get her to put her concerns on paper, but the female deputy was scared to do so and the complaint ended there. To me, it seemed like Sheriff Beam, along with many people, were afraid of this Gibson guy. After this meeting took place, a male colleague went to internal affairs and Gibson was investigated. The conclusion was that Gibson was a predator. His punishment? He retired with a full pension. 
Now that Gibson had lost his power, civilians came forward with some shocking stories. One woman said that Gibson would handcuff her and perform oral sex on her while she was on the hood of his patrol car. Another woman said he would follow her in her car, pull her over, and make her have sex with him. The woman was using drugs and thought that if she didn't have sex with Gibson, she would be arrested. Neither woman reported Gibson because they thought they wouldn't be believed. The Georgia Bureau of Investigations did investigate the claims, and it left them wondering how and why Sheriff Beam brushed Gibson's behavior and actions under the rug. I never found an explanation for this, but something tells me, if there is an explanation, that it's not pretty. I don't know what is going on at that sheriff's office. I don't know what's going on in Spalding County, but it's enough to make me not trust Sheriff Beam. If he protected Gibson, why wouldn't he protect his grandson? I do know that eventually at least six women filed civil suits against Gibson, and he was also indicted on 14 charges. I believe he pled guilty to two, which were violating his oath of office, and received a three-year sentence and probation. After his three-year sentence and probation, his record will be totally squeaky clean. That's right, wiped clean as if nothing happened. Now I want to talk about a man who doesn't wear a cape, but in my mind is a hero. A man who had nothing to gain by helping Jessica, but chose to do so anyways. This man is Will Sanders. Will was working as a truck driver, but he has a knack and personal interest for private detective work. And he gets into contact with Jessica. Jessica gives Will the case file on the case so he can look over it and find possible holes in the investigation. He didn't stop there, though. No, no. He went full-on detective on this. He went to the apartment Jessica was found almost dead in, and he asked the new occupants if he could go inside, find the closet, and look at the bullet holes. He timed himself driving from the apartment to the Waffle House, and he filed countless open record acts to get more information on Jessica's case. Will believes that what Matthew told police does not add up. He can't say what exactly happened between 11 p.m. and 1 a.m. because nothing seems to line up. He is also very suspicious of the red sweater Matthew was wearing when police arrived on scene because remember, Matthew was wearing a gray sweater when he was at Walmart just hours before and there never seems to be an explanation for this. One day, Will gets a Facebook message from Matthew Boyton's ex-girlfriend. This is not the dispatch operator Matthew was seeing when he and Jessica were married. This is his most recent ex-girlfriend who he had moved in with in 2017. And it's no surprise that she also says that she felt like Matthew was like a ticking time bomb and that he never let her go anywhere without knowing exactly where she was. This message she sends to Will is regarding a bag she found that Matthew had been holding on to. This bag was so important because it was Jessica's bag and previously Matthew had signed a sworn statement saying he did not have this bag because Jessica had accused him of keeping her stuff when he moved out when she was in a coma. This was a bag Jessica had packed when she was planning on leaving Matthew. It had Jessica's clothes in it 
and her orthodontic retainer. According to Matthew's now ex-girlfriend, Matthew had told her that he was going to burn it. Now, why on earth would Matthew want to destroy the bag Jessica packed to leave him and also hide this from police and lie on a sworn statement? Will ended up buying this bag for $120 from Matthew's ex-girlfriend. And he then brings it to the police and he's like, voila, here's proof Matthew lied on a sworn statement, which is illegal, which is a felony. This was something police could not sweep under the rug. Police question Matthew about this bag and he lies, but eventually they get the truth from him. You can actually find this police interview online if you look for it. After police question Matthew about this, he resigns from his job. I will play a brief segment for you now, which Eleven Alive uploaded online. I'm walking around outside. Why would you say you didn't have the damn bag when you had it? You know you can't give a sworn statement and lie on it. Why would you do that, Matthew? It was a bag, man. It wasn't, it's not like it was. Talk to me, man. I mean, help me understand. I'm sorry, I swear. I never never was hard to believe, but I didn't think about that bag. Otherwise, I wouldn't have broken, I wouldn't have broken. I said, hold on, little T. I got something, let me go get it. I swear, I wouldn't have done that. Because I've got two kids, three and one. I went and jumped around over a bag. If, I'm telling you, sorry. If I would have thought about it then, I would have said something. But you knew you had I the bag. Did you not know you had the bag? I'm sorry, I, my mind's right. I don't, I fucked up. I know I didn't. I should have turned it in. But not only because I'm a cop, because I should have, because it was just, because there's no shit music. It was the right thing to do, man. I'm clear. Yes, sir. If I would have thought about it then, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have messed up and been in this position because of my kids. But why didn't you turn the bag in when you damn moved? Because it was too. Okay, I was thinking then. Did you think he was gonna get in trouble if you turned it in late? I, I guess I don't know what I was going through. In my mind. So what do you think should happen now? No, that's probably gonna happen. No, that's not what I asked you. So what do you think should happen? I'll tell you what happens. I'll tell you what's going to happen to Matthew. This leads to Matthew being charged for making false statements and violating his oath of office, which are both felonies. In that audio clip, you can hear a bunch of clanging around, and that was Matthew taking off all of his police-issued gear because he knew he wasn't walking out of their cop. That was the end of the police interview. The beginning of it was him basically denying that he took the bag or knowing that it it was Jessica's bag, uh, but it ends off with what we just heard. So unfortunately, it took about 10 months for this to go through the courts and Matthew was not indicted, meaning nothing happened to him. Actually, just months later, he got a job as a reserve officer in a small town called Braswell in Georgia. So not only did he get off scot-free, but he's working again in law enforcement. 
I just want to circle back around to Will Sanders, the man who brought in Jessica's bag to police and told them Matthew had it all along. Will seemed to become a target for police after this, which is obviously incredibly suspicious. Why would police target Will after he exposed Matthew as a liar? Hmm. Will was accused of committing commercial burglaries, something he has never done in his life. Actually, another sworn statement was made by a lieutenant saying there was probable cause Will was involved in these crimes. Apparently, police can lie, or I'm sorry, make mistakes in these sworn statements as much as they want and not have to worry about the law. When Will requested more information about this, police were like, oh, oops, actually, that was a copy and paste error, and it turns out it's not you. But because of this mistake, police were able to submit warrants that gave them complete access to seven months of Will's private Facebook messages, and then released them to the public. A media company called Eleven Alive asked police for Boynton's case file, and within that file was Will Sanders' private Facebook messages. And it seemed like some of them had nothing at all to do with the case and were released only to embarrass Will. Will believes this was clearly payback for independently investigating Jessica's case and bringing in that bag that proved Matthew lied on a sworn statement. Police were trying to shut Will up. What's really scary is Will isn't sure how far police will go to set him up. He is constantly being vigilant. He's not sure if they're going to plant drugs in his car or in his home. He's not sure what they're willing to do to ruin his life. And that's terrifying. For now, he is the holder of all the evidence in hopes the FBI will look into the case, and that's all Will is doing about this case now. He really had no choice but to back down because of the police department terrifying him. And that is so fucked up. Please, can the FBI get involved in this case already? Jessica did eventually get more time with her children as her and Matthew were sharing custody. But then one day in 2018, her son came to her and told her that Matthew was hurting him. Jessica reported this to Child Protective Services, and this was looked into. The children went to see a psychologist, and after 25 visits, it was recommended the children do not see Matthew anymore. The children had come out and said that Matthew scares them. By 2019, Jessica had full custody, and of course, Matthew tried to fight this in court, and I'm not totally sure where this landed as of 2023. As of 2019, Jessica was engaged, living two hours away from Griffin, Georgia, where all this stuff occurred, and she had another baby. Jessica's new fiancé seems so nice, and they seem to make a great couple. Her fiancé told the New Yorker that Jessica will still ask if she can go to places, and he tells her, you are your own person, you don't have to ask. And that right there tells me everything I need to know about this guy. What's crazy is that Jessica is still declared a dead person at this point. She is legally deceased still. When Crime Watch Daily asks her if that's a mistake, she says, oh, I don't think it's a mistake. This case just keeps getting crazier and crazier. Why was Jessica ever pronounced dead? Why was her family told she was dead? Why is she legally on paper still declared dead? dead. 
Who filed the paperwork for that and, and why? Wouldn't a doctor have to sign off on that or a medical examiner? I'm not sure how one would get declared dead, but I feel like it's a process. Because of the brain injury Jessica suffered that night, she can't remember exactly what happened. But the last thing she remembers is going to Walmart, coming home, and wanting to take the dog for a walk, so she went to her closet to put on shoes. That's right, that's where her memory ends, is in that closet. If she had to guess, she would say her and Matthew were probably having an argument. Because remember, Jessica and the children were moving out the next day, and to someone who craves control, that might set them over the edge. Let's talk about whatever happened to Sheriff Beam. This I found very interesting because Sheriff Beam was voted out of office after the whole Gibson debacle and therefore was no longer sheriff. Daryl Dix had been promoted from lieutenant of Griffin Police Station to sheriff of Spalding County, meaning he has replaced Sheriff Beam. The day that the new sheriff arrived at the office, which was January 1st, 2017, he found nine huge garbage bags full of shredded paper. If that doesn't give Watergate vibes, I don't know what does. Apparently, workers stated that they spent two weeks shredding papers before the new sheriff arrived. That's right, two weeks. Two weeks weeks shredding paper. That is a lot of paper. And also, the computers had been wiped clean. During the time Crime Watch Daily was doing an episode on this case, they had actually accidentally spotted Matthew Boyton while he was still working for the Griffin Police Department before he resigned for that bag incident. Anna Garcia saw him on the job responding to a car accident, and when she approached him to ask him questions about what Jessica was saying, he could not get away fast enough. He is seen on camera ignoring Anna Garcia and getting into his police cruiser and driving away without saying a word. Then, this is where it gets creepy. Hours later, Anna Garcia receives a threatening email. This email reads, quote, Are you an intelligent enough investigative journalist to know when you are being conned or do you have to be spoon-fed? The devil is in the details. The answers to the con are in the GBI audio interviews of the husband and the wife. Don't get distracted by what the characters want to show you. Do your job. If you are a real investigative journalist and report what really happened, show the world how smart you are and uncover what the wannabe investigative reporters couldn't figure out. If not, get on a plane and go home. Unquote. And home was in all caps. So Crime Watch Daily tried to chase down who sent this email, but they were unable to, meaning whoever sent it went to great lengths to remain anonymous. The thing is, though, just hours before, Anna Garcia had a run-in with Matthew Boyton. So I don't know if you just want to take one guess who sent it. There are so many things not adding up in this case. What was filed is that Jessica shot herself in the head and is dead. But the doctor who treated her said it looked like blunt force trauma. The bullet holes in the closet are in an upward angle, and it's said that Jessica shot herself on top of her head with the gun pointing down. There was no blood spatter in the closet, no bullet hole in her head, and she was found with her head placed perfectly on a pillow with the gun underneath her body. Also, a lot of people find it hard to believe that she could have fired that gun twice if she was intending to shoot herself. 
Another thing is that Matthew's wardrobe change was never questioned. There's that whole gray sweater, red sweater situation. Why did he change his clothing in the span of a few hours? Why wasn't the gray sweater ever found and tested? Why were his and or Jessica's hands not tested for gunshot residue? How was Matthew's cell phone inside the apartment while he was outside radioing in the gunshots, yet he's also texting his girlfriend, from that cell phone at the same time. Was he inside or was he outside? Was he terrified his children were being murdered or was he taking time to text his girlfriend? Jessica doesn't believe she would send that suicide text to Matthew because she would have never told him that she loved him or used the line about not recognizing herself in the mirror. So why weren't the cell phones ever, I don't know, triangulated to see where they were when that message was sent and then received? And why were their pages ripped out of Jessica's divorce diary? Why is Matthew's Waffle House alibi timeline not adding up? Who sent Crime Watch Daily that threatening email when they were investigating? Why were there nine garbage bags of shredded documents in the sheriff's office? Why were the computers wiped clean? Why was that Gibson guy allowed to get away with such horrendous misconduct? And whenever someone complained, the complaint went nowhere. So many unanswered questions. But I do have to add in, at the time of this recording, and as far as I know, Matthew Boyton has never been found guilty with anything relating to Jessica's case. In an interview with Crime Watch Daily, Anna Garcia asks Jessica in regards to that suicide text who she believes wrote and sent it. And Jessica would have to guess that Matthew did it in order to cover his tracks. Jessica also believed Matthew hit her over the head with something while she was in that closet because they were having an argument. She said she never shot herself. Crime Watch Daily also got a man named Tim Miley who worked for the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department for 33 years and who was a homicide investigator to look over Jessica's case thoroughly. And he does this. And after he reviews everything, he does not believe Jessica shot herself. And this is a man who has seen a lot of homicides and suicides involving gunshots. I really do hope the FBI get involved and they take this case on. Because there are a lot of things that aren't adding up. And Will Saunders, he has kept all of the evidence still sealed in bags, including that journal Jessica was keeping about Matthew, that divorce journal, because that's still in a sealed bag. And he would love to have that tested to see if any of Matthew's DNA is on it, because there shouldn't be. There is a petition going around on change.org. It's called Justice for Jessica Boynton. I have linked it in my show notes. Feel free to sign it if you would like to see justice for Jessica. This is a petition to the Federal Bureau of Investigations for them to look into this case. When I last checked, they had 21,974 signatures and they were looking to get to 25,000. So feel free to find that link in my show notes and sign the petition for justice for Jessica. Boyton. That concludes this week's episode. If you would like to get weekly notifications, please follow Hell No, a true crime podcast on TikTok and Instagram at hellno underscore 
a true crime podcast. If you would like to send in one of your spooky stories, fact or fiction, creepy, long, short, whatever, I would like to put together another Halloween special this year, but I need your help. So if you'd like to send in one of your own stories, please send it to hellnopodcast at outlook.com. That's hellnopodcast at outlook.com. Thanks for listening and see you next week.